Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. As you know, we are currently in a three-week break from our study in the book of Revelation. And we're on this break to touch on a few foundational points of the doctrine of eschatology, which simply means the doctrine of last things. The doctrine of last things pertaining to humanity, to the earth, to heaven, to creation. That's what the Bible is talking about as it relates to eschatology and the last things relating to those and many other topics. Now, last week I shared with you the two overarching theological systems that guide the Protestant world in their approach to Scripture. We talked a little bit about covenant and dispensational theology. We discovered that two primary eschatological viewpoints come out of covenant theology, namely amillennialism and postmillennialism, and I'm not going to go any further with that. I defined those last week. If you need a refresher on what those words mean, I would encourage you to go to our website, www.themissiondsm.org. You'll find all of our sermons there, and you can watch them, or you can go out to Apple or Spotify or Google and catch it as a podcast and just get the message, and you can go back and review that if you would like. Now, there's a third eschatological view that comes out of covenantalism. It's not as prominent as the other two that I just mentioned, and it is called preterism. Preterism. Preterism basically is a view that sees most all of the prophecies uh, pertaining to what we would call last things as having already occurred. So when a preterist looks at the book of Revelation and Daniel and other things, they basically look at 70 A.D. and believe all of that has already been done and we're not looking for any of that to come in the days ahead. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. That is one of the other views. On the other side of the fence, then, is the dispensational theological view, which basically yields one overarching view of eschatology, and that is pre millennialism and again I'm not going to go any further with that that definition was in last Sunday's message as well now something I did not do last week that I want to go ahead and do right now last week I did not tell you which side of the fence I stand on am I a covenantalist am I a dispensationalist well I'm going to tell you what I am now I don't embrace either of those views fully. That's where I'm coming from. I do not denounce all of the points of covenantalism, nor do I embrace all of the points of dispensationalism. Both of those really are theological constructs created by fallible men. And as such, then, they have their positives, they have their negatives. Now, if push comes to shove, I identify more. That word is interesting these days, isn't it? I identify. I identify more. <laughs> I identify more as with the dispensational view. But I don't really like to call myself a dispensationalist. I would rather refer to myself, and I'd rather people see me as a biblicist. 
Someone who is going to dig into the scripture and strive to understand what it has to say. As a biblicist, I am wanting, uh, not always successful, I'm sure, but to come at the scripture from a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, which that word hermeneutic simply means uh, a method of, of, of interpretation. I, I, I want to discover what the scripture says. I, I want to allow the scripture to interpret itself along with the grammatical constructs that exist and the historical context which is part of the biblical text. So that's where I'm coming from. I, I just want to know what the Bible says. I don't care so much about standing in that camp or this camp uh, as they, um, you know, are just what they are. So today, using that hermeneutic, I want to take you to this Old Testament book of Daniel. We're going to look at chapter 9. It's one of the most important, in my view, one of the most important eschatological prophecies in the Old Testament. You say, why, Pastor Mike? Why is it so important? Well, I believe it's important because it not only shines light on the coming of the Messiah and the uh, salvific work of the Messiah, but it also gives some insight into the end times prophecy, things that are still yet future. And so I'm going to take a moment to set up the passage, then we're going to read a certain part of it, and then we'll um, unpack it. So perhaps you will recall this past summer, we did a series out of the book of Daniel. But that series was not about prophecy. We just looked at the first six chapters, and it was about Daniel's life story. And we were looking at Daniel's story to help us understand how we, like he, could live in a world that is steeped in paganism but still walk with Christ successfully. That's what we were doing back then. And, but when we went through those first six chapters, we discovered that Daniel was taken captive along with thousands and thousands of other Jews when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel. And that Daniel was deported to Babylon, and through a series of divinely orchestrated events, Daniel rose to be the second in charge of the nation. That's just phenomenal to me, that a, a, a man who was taken captive, you know, winds up being the one practically running the nation that took him captive. That's just, well, same thing happened to Joseph, did it not? And so... But also, because of some special abilities that Daniel had, that God had given him and invested in him, specifically one of those to be able to interpret uh, uh, dreams, Daniel was also put in charge of the wise men, the astrologers, uh, the prophets of Babylon, uh, and, and so forth. Now, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is in his 80s. Babylon has now invaded Israel three times. It has destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It has destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And by that time, the vast majority of Israelites had been deported. And so, we're safe to say that Israel at that point was no longer a functioning nation. And all of that happened to Israel as a judgment from God. 
Those events were orchestrated by the God of Israel. He judged them because his people had ignored major parts of his law in general, but they had ignored his law about Sabbaths relating to the land, relating to agriculture in particular. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 2 through 7. I'm not going to read that, but if you go there, you'll find this very thing being talked about. God's law stated that every seventh year, every seventh year, the land was to be left unplanted, untilled, unharvested, right? It was to be given a Sabbath rest. But Israel just ignored that. They just did what they wanted to do, and they just planted and planted and just ignored God's law about the Sabbath rest for the land. In fact, Israel ignored that law for 490 years. Now, that's an important number. So if you got your note guide out, maybe you'll just write that down. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. 490 years. And basically what that means then is that 70 Sabbath years had been violated. 70 Sabbath years. And so God then judged them and he took them out of the land, judged them in this way for 70 years as a judgment on that sin. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 through 21, just gives you a quick picture of that. And so Daniel, along with so many others, has been living in Babylon. He's been living pretty nicely, though, as second in command of, of the nation. But Daniel was a student of God's word as it was in the day, what was available to him at the day. And he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he discovered as he read the prophet Jeremiah that Israel's exile was to last only 70 years. And that when those 70 years were up, God was going to restore Israel to the land. Let's look at that particular passage. It's up on the screen for you, or you can turn your Bible. Jan- uh, January, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, and you know that when we see the capital L-O-R-D, that's a, um, uh, it, really behind that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Daniel's reading this. He's discovering this. And those days are getting close. So many of those years have passed now. Maybe they were within three years of hitting that 70-year mark. Now, while I'm at Jeremiah 29.10, I want you to also look with me at Jeremiah 29.11, because I have a point that I want to make that's got nothing to do with eschatology, but it's important for you to know nonetheless. This verse, verse 11, is probably one of the most consistently taken out of context verses that there is. Okay? And this is what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And what most people do, Pastor Brett knows all about this, and so does Adam, and so does many others, is people just kind of take that verse, verse 11, and pull it out of the dresser drawer like one verse, like, like one drawer, right? They ignore all the other drawers, and they pull that one out, and they give it meaning. And we're not supposed to do that, folks. We are not supposed to do that. Here's the way that two verses go together and the way it should be heard and understood. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Truth point number one. Jeremiah 29, 11 is God's promise to Israel. It is God's promise to Israel. Now, he may very well have good plans for all of us, and that's awesome. But we cannot claim our good plans or the plans God may have for us using that passage to claim them. This is a promise to Israel to reestablish them in the land and not a promise to you and me about God's good plans for us. So, if you're accustomed to using that, you might want to change that up just a smidgen, all right? And not grab that and tell everybody how God's got good plans for you and has made you a promise because that ain't it. He may have made another one somewhere else. But that one is directly for Israel. So, as Daniel discovers these writings in the book of Jeremiah, he begins to pray. He begins to pray because he wants to see God do what God said he would do. And so the time is coming up. The deadline is coming. And so Daniel puts himself to begin to pray. One of those prayers is recorded in our chapter that we're looking at today. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. It's quite a compelling prayer. You'll find Daniel there confessing the sins of his people. You'll see him making petitions to God for his mercy and deliverance according to the promises that have been given in his word. We're not going to look through all the prayer, but for the context purposes, I want us just to kind of catch those last uh, parts of his prayer, beginning with verse 17. So he's been praying, and now we're kind of jumping into the last part of his prayer where Daniel says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. So basically what he means there is the temple in Jerusalem is no more. It's been destroyed. It's desolate. And he's asking God to shine his face on that to restore. Oh my God, he says, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy O Lord hear O Lord forgive O Lord pay attention and act 
Do not, for your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, delay not, excuse me, delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Again, this has nothing to do with eschatology. We'll get there in a minute. But this is another point that I think is important for us. Truth point number two. As we read that part of Daniel's prayer, we can see that Daniel makes his appeal on the basis of God's honor and glory in keeping his word given through Jeremiah and not on the basis of personal or national pride. And I want us to think about that because there's a lot of people in our evangelical world who take up prayers for our nation. Awesome. Keep it up. That's great. We need to pray for our nation. Absolutely. However, I just want to ask, do we currently pray for our nation motivated for his glory or are we praying for our pride just want to ask no accusations made i'll let the holy spirit speak to your heart about that but truly are we praying for the glory of god or are we praying for our national pride Well, now we come to the passage for the day. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And now we're going to get into some eschatological stuff. Verse 20. While I, that is Daniel, was speaking. So he's been praying. Now he's given us commentary. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin... And the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my God. The holy hill is a reference there to Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Now I just want to stop there for a second. Gabriel's not a man and this wasn't another man named Gabriel. But Gabriel is appearing to Daniel in human form. And that's the way he then reports it, the man Gabriel. But back in Daniel 8, uh, chapter, chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, which he mentions here, whom I had seen in the vision at first, it was very clear to Daniel that he's a supernatural being, not a natural being. So we're talking here about the angel Gabriel. Came to me, he says, in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. I like for us to understand what we're reading. So let me just make a comment about at the time of the evening sacrifice. There was no evening sacrifice. There had been no evening sacrifice for decades. The temple was destroyed. It ain't happening. So why is Daniel saying that? Because Daniel in his heart is still longing for what he knows God wants for his people. So he's counting time the way they would have counted time when the temple was up and running and the things were going as they were going. And by the way, for them, the uh, evening sacrifice was at 3 p.m. So that's the time of day 
that Daniel is experiencing this uh, visitation from Gabriel. Verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make, this is this prince, this second prince that's being talked about, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations he shall come, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All that clear? No, it's not. Hopefully we can make some clarity come out of this before we say our final amen. Father, as we now attempt to look at this part and understand it appropriately in, in, in concert with your other revelation of Scripture and historical context and all that is there. Help us, help me, help me to communicate well. Um, Lord, remind everybody here and all those who may be watching online that it is not my intention to indoctrinate them with my views of eschatology, but simply to explain what I believe is true, and that if we have a difference of opinion, we don't have to part ways, but we can then just work together to strive to understand. This is a difficult passage, and anyone who would pretend it isn't isn't being honest. So help us and guide us and speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel's people, Israel, are under God's judgment for 70 years. As Daniel petitions the Lord for the restoration of his people and nation, we see that God sends the angel Gabriel with a message. The message that Gabriel has is a message about 70 weeks. Literally, though, what this says is 
70 sets of seven. That's what 70 weeks is really about. 70 sets of seven. To which then we ask, well, seven what? Right? What are these seven? Of which there are 70 sets. Well, going back to Leviticus 25.8, I believe we find the answer. When you go back to Leviticus 25, it's, it's God's instruction to Moses concerning the law of the Sabbath rest for the land. We've already talked about that. I read just a little bit from there. It's the very law that Israel broke 70 times. And here's what verse 8 says. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. It's not important that we understand all that's being said there. It's just that we see the clear connection with the idea of weeks representing years. The seven days of a week. When you think of a week, you think of seven. And the communication here is not about days or months, but it's about years. By the way, after those 49 years would come the 50th year, which would be the year of Jubilee, which is an even greater Sabbath than any of the others. Now, as we think about 70 sets of seven, we add that up or multiply that out, and we get 490. Remember, I told you that was going to come back. 490. So we're looking at 490 years is what the communication is there. God judged Israel because for 490 years they disregarded his law about the Sabbath rest for the land. Now, Gabriel is conveying to Daniel that a separate 490 years are going to be set aside by God to accomplish something that is different either for and or to Israel. So the 490 we're looking at now is something that in Daniel's day was future. The other was in the past and God is judging them because of their disregard from it or for it. So we look at verse 24 and we find that in verse 24, there are six purposes that God has for Israel and the holy city Jerusalem that is directly related to these 70 sets of seven years. And Gabriel told Daniel that the clock for the 490 years would begin, as it says in verse 25, when the word to restore and build Israel is given. Okay, So, before we get into those purposes, let's just ask the question, who gave the word to restore Jerusalem? And when was it given? Well, there were several decrees made out relating to the land of Israel during this time at different years. This is the only one that really specifically lays it out that it's about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And we find when we look at that that it's King Artaxerxes 
who gives this word, and he gives it in the 20th year of his reign as king. Now, historically, we know that Artaxerxes took the throne in 465 B.C. Back in those times, if, um, if a king took his throne in a partial year, then that partial year would not be counted as the first year. It would be the year that he served his full first year that would be counted as first. And so from that perspective, if we were looking at it, taking that historical nugget into play, then we would be talking about 464 B.C. But we're not going to quibble over whether it's 465 or 464. We'll just join him together. Is that okay? We'll just join him together and just call it 465, 464 B.C. Because I can't stand up here and swear to you that I know which one it is. But it's one of those two. We do know this. We know that the month that, uh, that Artaxerxes gave the command was the month of Nisan, which correlates with our month of March. So Artaxerxes was in his 20th year when he issued the command, 20th year of reigning. So we remove those 20, and what, we, what do we get? We arrive at March 445 or 444 B.C. I want to come back to that again in a minute. I'm coming back to a lot of things, aren't I? That's what happens when you try to explain prophecy. <laughs> so, having established that, just kind of putting that to rest for a second, let's now look at God's purpose. God's purpose for this 70 weeks of years. Gabriel makes it clear. Verse 24. Number one, to finish the transgression. Well, whose transgression is Gabriel talking about? I'll answer that question with a question. Whose transgressions has Daniel been grieving over? Whose transgressions has Daniel been praying about? Israel's, right. So the message is that by the time that the 70 weeks is over, by the time that 490 years, you're going to have to be patient with this one, is over, then Israel's transgression their hard heart toward God and his Messiah will be over. Now that is future. It has not yet occurred. You're doing the math. I'm just telling you, be patient. Number two, the purpose is to put an end to sin. Again, uh, the focus here is on Israel. So I believe we should understand this to be a reference to them nationally. And a commitment by God to forgive their sin and purify them as a people. That is still future. It still has not happened. Number three, God's purpose for this time frame is to atone for iniquity. No doubt the Messiah in his salvific work through the cross is in view here. And it's what the first advent is all about. This thing that we are decorating for and we're claiming that we're going to celebrate right is really about the atonement for iniquity jesus came to be the sacrificial lamb of god to make atonement for sin that part has been fulfilled he did come and he did make an atonement for sin number four is to bring in everlasting righteousness Everlasting righteousness. 
Although the redeemed are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I believe this is looking to something greater than that. It's looking, I believe, to a time when universal righteousness will rule not only over redeemed Israel and over redeemed Gentiles, but over creation as well. And that is still future. Number five, the purpose of all of this is to seal both vision and profit. Again, I believe this speaks to a time when the prophecies of the Messiah and the kingdom will be fulfilled, therefore leaving no need for the prophetic office. Also no need to hope in what has been prophesied because it will have already been accomplished. Now, two things with this one. The prophecies of the Messiah as it relates to his first advent and making atonement for sin, that has been fulfilled. So we don't need to hear hear any more prophecies about that. Nor do we need to hope in that, that it'll happen because it's happened. But the prophecies that are still there in the scripture relating to the kingdom, those are still to be fulfilled. So they're still future. And then number six, to anoint a or the most holy place the word place is not in the Hebrew text but the phrase the most holy is used 39 times in the Old Testament in reference to the tabernacle or to the temple it was never used in relationship to the coming Messiah so it is Referring to a place was why they put that word there and not a person. I see this as the anointing of the millennial kingdom, I mean the millennial temple, when Christ takes his throne to rule over earth for a thousand years. And again, that is still future. So those are the six things we find that Gabriel said is what this 70 weeks is all about. Truth point number three. Although some do not acknowledge it, and there are some who don't, Daniel 9, I believe, verifies that God has a continuing plan for Israel and that that plan stretches into his millennial kingdom. I simply do not buy the thought that Israel and the church are one and the same. We are not. There is a plan God has for national Israel. Not every Jew that's ever been born. That's not what I mean. But at a specific point in time, those who are living, national Israel, God has a plan for them. Those who are saved uh, before that plan comes, they are part of the church. And so that's a different situation. But God has a continuing plan for Israel. He is not done with his people. So, these are the six points presented by Gabriel to Daniel to identify God's purpose for his 70 weeks or 490 years. Okay. As we look at Gabriel's words, we find that he breaks down the 70 weeks in three parts. He speaks of those 70 weeks first as seven weeks. Then he speaks of 62 weeks. And then he speaks of one week. If you take all that, that adds up to how many? Okay, pull out your phone, get your... It does, it adds up to 70, all right? 
I've checked it several times to make sure. But that's the way he speaks of it. He's been talking about just 70. Now he breaks it down into three parts. So we have to then look to say, well, what is the significance of that? The significance of the seven weeks or 49 years really is not clear. I don't have an absolute to throw down for you on that particular reference. It is suggested, and perhaps accurately by some, that this is a reference to the work that would be done by Nehemiah and the Jews who were with him to get Jerusalem up and running. It makes sense. It works in that 49-year period from the time the word went out until this 49 years were accomplished. And the book of Nehemiah clearly shows that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was done in a time of great stress, a time when there was much adversity on pretty much every front, but that by the time we would get to that 49 years post the beginning, uh, Israel, I mean, uh, Jerusalem had become functioning by that time as the words we find there in verse 25 say, it shall be built again with squares. What does that mean? I believe that's just simply talking about the, the layout of the streets, you know, because those had been destroyed. It has to be rebuilt. And moat. I looked that up. And basically, not, don't be thinking about something with water in it around a castle, but more of a space between walls, right? So those protective walls and moat. And all of this is going to happen in troubled time, according to Gabriel. The greater significance, really, here is found when adding the seven weeks and the 62 weeks together, which makes 69 weeks, or 483 years. I'm, talk, I'm trying to talk slow so that we can follow along. Even still, I'm sure some are going to get lost. I'm sorry. So we're looking now at 483 weeks, this, this, the 62 and the 7. Now, many have looked at this 69-week period of time, 483 years, and have plotted that out from the time that the word went out to rebuild Jerusalem forward, and they believe that they have arrived at a date. I'm talking about not just a year, but a month and an actual day. It's pretty precise. I'm not going to even try that with you. I'm going to keep it simple. Keeping it simple, when you take 69 years of seven, again, you get 483 years, which is seven years or one of Daniel's weeks shy of the 490 or the 70 weeks of years. When you calculate 483 years according to the accounting of the number of days in a year that was in use at that time when the prophecy was written, which was 360 days, that brings you to A.D. 32, A.D. 33, depending on which year you started off with. Which brings the 69 weeks to a close within a year of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there are those who bring it all the way down to his entry into Jerusalem there just before. but I'm, I'm going to leave that to them. Now... Daniel 9.25 speaks of an anointed one, a prince, whom it says is coming before the 69 weeks is completed. 
The word anointed is translated from uh, Mishach, I believe is correct, which means Messiah. And we know that Jesus the Messiah was born before A.D. 32 or 33. So the Messiah came before the end of the 69 weeks. But I want you to notice another point in Daniel 9.26. It says that after the 69 weeks, this same one, this same anointed one or Messiah, Jesus, would be cut off after the 69 weeks was completed. Cut off mean to die. And that verse in the ESV ends with, and have nothing. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus had nothing at the end of his life. No clothes, no, no estate, not even a tomb. The tomb he was buried in was borrowed. And even the Heavenly Father turned his back on him because of the sin that was upon him. Concerning Jesus' death, the calculation of the timetable revealed to Daniel by the angel Gabriel has Jesus' death set after the 69 weeks had come to a close. And so this then is the part of the prophecy that I am calling messianic. It doesn't give you a lot of detail, as a lot of the prophecies don't give you a lot of detail. But it speaks of a coming Messiah, and it speaks of the death of a Messiah. Sounds messianic to me. Truth point number four. The prophecies of Jesus' first advent are found throughout Old Testament Scripture. The reason or purpose of his coming is clearly presented as well. He came to be the sacrifice for sin and the source of eternal life. And before I go to the second part of that truth point, I just want to encourage us, church, to keep that in mind as we celebrate during this Christmas season. He came to be the sacrifice for sin. He came to be the source of eternal life. Part two, Jesus is God's perfect gift for sin-cursed humanity. His death and resurrection has the power to transform the darkest soul, making it clean and acceptable to God. It's important for us to remember, too, that the Lord can save the darkest soul. Finally, we come then to the last week of years, the 70th week of Daniel. When does that occur? Let me finish out verse 26. Follow carefully. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Here we're introduced to a second prince. The first prince is called the anointed one. The first prince has been cut off. So the prince that is being spoken of here is different. Who is he? Well, we know that in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem. According to Josephus, over a million Jews were slaughtered. Over a million were slaughtered. 
and over 95,000 were taken captive as slaves. The city was burned to the ground. The temple was dismantled so that not one stone rested on another. And this certainly fits with the destruction of the city and the sanctuary or the temple spoken of in verse 26. So what Titus did in 70 AD fits that part. However, Titus and his Roman army really were just the people of the prince that was still yet to come. So while what they did fits what happened then, Still, the information about this prince that is to come, this is pointing to someone yet future. It's not pointing to Titus. Now, in trying to explain all this, I want to go back to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Remember that this summer when we pulled up the statue? There it is, Daniel chapter 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar had that dream? And Daniel said, well, the head of gold represents Babylon. But after Babylon would come the Medo-Persian Empire, which is represented by the chest and arms of silver. And after the Medo-Persian Empire would come Greece, which is represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And after Greece would come Rome, which is represented by the legs of iron. All three, all four of those kingdoms have come and gone. But there was something left on the statue, was there not? Was there not? Let's make sure you're awake. There's the feet and the toes that are made out of a mixture of iron and clay. They represent a future revived Roman Empire. It won't be like the old one. It won't last for hundreds and hundreds of years. It won't be as strong as the original clay and iron mixed together. It's going to be more fragile. And it's only going to exist for a fraction of time. But that kingdom, the feet and the toes that are represented there in that statue, that part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream has not yet materialized. But that is the kingdom that this second prince is going to have authority over. Verse 27 says, And he, that is the second prince, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And there we have the appearance of the 70th week of Daniel. And it's still future. It has not happened yet. 483 of the 490 years have come and gone. But that last seven years has not yet come or gone. Gabriel went on to say to Daniel about that week and that covenant that and for the and for half of the week meaning the last three and a half years he that is that prince that he's talking about shall put an end to sacrifice and offering so who is all this let me help you with that truth point number five the he of daniel nine twenty seven, i believe is none other than the antichrist He is the beast of Revelation chapter 13. Who Revelation chapter 13 says is given authority over the nations for 42 months, which is three and a half years. The many, 
I believe, represents Israel primarily, who at that time is in the land, which they are now, who have a rebuilt temple, which they do not have now, who will have a restored sacrificial system, which they do not have now. But all of that, I believe, will come complements of the seven-year treaty. That For those first three and a half years, he will promise to take care of them. He will promise to protect them. He will promise to honor their religious system. And they will get it up and running again. But Gabriel says that he will turn against them halfway through, putting an end to sacrifices and offerings. It doesn't say it here, I don't think. Yes, it does in, in the passage. But this beast, this antichrist, this world leader, will also desecrate that temple by setting himself up as God to be worshipped. You say, where do you find that? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And I believe that is what is pointing, I'm hearing somebody's phone, that's what is pointing to when we come to verse 27b where it says, and on the wing of abominations, what is the abomination? It's the desecration of that third temple during the seven-year tribulation, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So let's try to Let's try to wrap that up, and then we'll, uh, we'll go home. Truth point number six, the desolator. Who is that? Well, in, 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 in the context of this passage, it, it, it's the Antichrist. He's the one who's the desolator. He's the one who's going to set himself up as God in the temple that is still yet to be built. And it's also spoken there that there's a decreed end. Uh, church, listen, a decreed end. So there, there is this, this, this thing coming, right, where this, this, this leader is going to set himself up in the temple that he has given Israel the, the, the permission to build, and he has protected them for so long, but there's going to come a point in time where he goes in there and says, no, I'm God, and I'm going to set myself up in your temple, and you will worship me. There is a designated or decreed end to that. What is it? Well, it's not mentioned there in Daniel, but it is mentioned in the book of Revelation, and that is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth with his resurrected, raptured saints to destroy the army and the kingdom of Satan and his Antichrist. That, ultimately, is what is going to bring an end to that seven-year tribulation. And when that comes to an end, I got good news. Jesus is going to stay. He's not going to leave. And he is going to establish a new kingdom where he personally rules and reigns with his saints for a thousand years. Now, I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. So, Daniel 9 and the prophecy of 70 weeks. It is messianic. And it is eschatological. And in case you haven't noticed, there is a huge amount of time between the two. The messianic part, as far as the coming of the Messiah, first time, and the atonement for sin, that happened over 2,000 years ago. 
And the eschatological part is still future. So, we're in this no man's land, so to speak. The 490 years have not been completed. 483 have, but there's seven left to go. And as of today, there's still future. But there is an event that I believe is looming large on the horizon. I believe it is the event that will basically kick off that 70th week of Daniel. It's called the rapture. The rapture. I'm just curious. How many of you have heard that before? The rapture. Okay, good. Great. Fantastic. I figured as much. Just wanted to make sure. Well, that's our topic next week. Next week, we're going to deal with this question. Does the Bible teach a rapture of the church? There are good, qualified, well-learned, well-studied, godly theologians who say no. There's not going to be one. Don't get your hopes up, folks. On the other side of the fence are men who are just as qualified, just as godly, just as all the rest, who tell you, you bet your life one is coming. So we're going to try to, this poor wretch of a fellow (laughs) is going to try to deal with that question. Does, I don't care what a theologian says per se, does the Bible give us any indication that this thing that we've heard about called the rapture of the church, is it real? And if it is, when is it? What does the Bible have to say? Each week I speak to people who are on both sides of the fence of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For those who have that, which many of you in the room do, many of you watching online do, many of you in the overflow area do, this topic of eschatology should be a blessing. It should be an encouragement. So we're not done yet. So you don't need to get your purse ready to go. I want to say that again. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, This stuff that we call eschatology, it shouldn't scare you. You shouldn't be scared. Concerned, yes. Wondering about it, yes. But not scared. It should bring encouragement to your life. If you understand the doctrine of eschatology properly, it should give you um, a, a clarity of the world's current condition. It should help you to have confidence in the fact that God is in control. That you can be assured that Jesus Christ has his hand on the wheel. It may not look like it, but he does. I guarantee it. So if you know Christ, it should be an encouragement to know where things are going. But if you do not have a saving relationship with Christ then this topic of eschatology, which means the doctrine of last things, has nothing good for you to hold on to. Why? Because it lays out a future for you that has no hope because you don't know God. The good news, though, is that we're not there yet. We're not there yet. 
And so there is hope. And God has his hand extended through his son, Jesus the Christ. We are presently living in what they call the age of grace, where the Lord Jesus Christ is calling on those who do not follow him to lay down sin and self to embrace him as their Savior and Lord. He calls them to do that because the Son of God left heaven. He became human so that as a man he could take our sin upon himself so that he could die in our place, so that he could pay our sin debt, so that he could provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead with victory over sin, death, and hell, and he gives that to each one who will embrace him. He will give them forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It's called the good news or the gospel. And perhaps there's someone in this room who has questions about that, would like to know more about it. Perhaps there's somebody watching online. Perhaps you're catching this thing three years down the road. If we're all still here, my contact information is on the screen. Reach out. I'll reach back. Unless I've gone on to be in glory. But uh, seriously, in the here and now, if you want to talk about it, if you have questions, Reach out. I will reach back. I do believe that God will meet you at your need if you come to him in humility and sincerity. He will meet you, and he can transform your life. Father, I pray now that you'll take the things that have been shared today, which I'm sure for some is overwhelming. For others, they're sitting there saying, why didn't you go into that? But whatever the case may be, Lord, would you just take what has been shared and do your work in, the, in individual hearts and lives. And then ultimately, to do something in the heart and life of this church body. Lord, help us to be students of your word. And help us to be informed. Help us to care about the things that may be hard to understand. Knowing that your spirit and your word will bring clarity as we study. So may your will be done in our hearts and lives. May you be lifted up, honored, and glorified. May people be helped and benefited, I pray in Jesus' name. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.